0: All right, well, if you would, please turn with me one last time to Luke chapter 22. Uh, previously in Luke chapter 22, we have seen Jesus be arrested and brought into custody. Uh, we've seen this happen in the middle of the night, in the uh, uh, middle of nowhere, in the guard, an olive grove uh, by the temple guards and Roman soldiers, and they took Jesus they brought him to the house, to the home of the chief priest. And in an inexact correlation, the chief priest is kind of like the chief justice, uh, the, the main leader of the Supreme Court, the chief priest being the, the main leader of the Sanhedrin, um, the, the council, the court of the Jewish people in the temple. And so Jesus was arrested, he was brought to that home. Uh, Last week we took a brief aside from looking at the arrest and trials of Jesus to look at Peter and his denials of Christ. uh, As Peter was following the crowd uh, and and trying to follow Jesus, uh, following to where they took uh, Jesus. Today we get back to Jesus and we see what is happening to him. Sorry, Sorry. (laughs) I I don't know. I messed up. Apparently, that's fine. We'll just find a a screen to. to stay on right there there it is all right uh, so today we look at the first of the three trials of jesus uh, we'll go ahead and we'll read our passage luke chapter 22 verses 63 through 71 uh, so through the end of the chapter as you all know i'll be reading out of the english standard version i encourage you to grab whatever version of the bible you prefer reading whichever version you understand most clearly, uh, whichever translation helps you read the word of God for yourself and helps you to grow closer to God. The, uh, Luke 22, 63 through 71, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the very word of God itself reads, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Thus says the word of God. Uh, So the setting of this week's passage was was set up. Uh, back in 54, we, we touched on this in the introduction, the, the temple guards, Roman soldiers and the servants of the chief priest. They arrest Jesus. They seize him. They take him to the chief priest's home. Uh, the first these first few verses, um, 63 through I think it's 66. Um, these first few verses seem to be in conjunction time wise. Uh, they seem to be parallel to the passage last week we looked at of Peter in the courtyard. So it seems that Jesus is waiting for this assembly, for the council of of elders, chief priests, and so on, as they're preparing for this trial. And as he is waiting, as he is being held in custody, uh, one of the things we see common in storytelling, um, not that this is just a story, but uh, one of the things that we see common in storytelling is, is that when an innocent man is held in custody, guards will often taunt, mistreat, abuse, mock the the innocent prisoner as they're waiting. This is where that comes from. This is what is happening here to Jesus. Uh, This is uh they use this in in today's storytelling because it comes from somewhere. Uh these first three verses, 63 through 65, I'm sorry, they show us how much humiliation and abuse Jesus was already taking at the beginning of this ordeal. And it's it's only getting started. uh, as you read through Luke chapter 23, it only gets worse. They were mocking him. They were making fun of him and his position. They were making fun of him and the, 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 the true stories that have been passed along about him. They were blindfolding and hitting him, telling him, if you're really who you say you are, prophesy and tell us who hit you. They're laughing at him. And ironically, this call for him to prophesy who was hitting him was happening at the same time that a previous prophecy that Jesus gave of Peter denying him was in the midst of being fulfilled. His, the prophecies he made were being fulfilled even as they mocked him to prophesy who was hitting him. They were com- these men were completely blaspheming him as he was about to go on trial for and wrongly found guilty of blasphemy. And Jesus took it. He absolutely took it. He didn't respond. He didn't act. Uh, he didn't uh, engage how most of us would, would have done. He didn't yell for them to stop. He didn't fight back. He didn't struggle. He didn't argue back at them. He is and he was so much better than, than you and I. And we have to be careful how far we take this because we are not Jesus. Jesus. We, are, we will not go through this life, in this life, what Jesus went through in, in, the, in Luke 22 and 23 and in the, the other gospels as they, they record this. He was 100% completely sinless and in no way, shape or form deserved anything that happened to him in these passages. We are sinful creatures who are on the receiving end of God's mercy every single day. And we will not go through what he went through here. And so we have to be careful not to compare ourselves completely to Jesus in this. However, Jesus did say, if the world hates us, it's because they hated him first. And so we will go through things. We will go through. There's a wide spectrum of of things that fall under the umbrella of persecution. This, This country, at this point in time, Does not know the the end of that spectrum that a lot of other Christians are going through in this in this world that that may come that that Christians have gone through historically. That doesn't mean that there's nothing that we will go through that falls under the umbrella of persecution. There will be things Uh, as we go through life. Those things will come. They will happen. Sometimes people will come at us uh, in many different ways. Sometimes it will be because we preach the truth that they don't like. Sometimes it'll be for untruths that they believe, whether about us or about the world that, that, you know, that, that, that come about. Sometimes we will receive unjust treatment, punishment, consequences when we are not guilty of what they are claiming. Sometimes we'll go through that when we are. Don't want to say that we're always going to be 100% innocent when things come against us. But we will also go through those times when that is not the case, consequences that we do not deserve. When that happens, our first instinct is to lash out, to fight back. Our first reaction is to defend ourselves by any means necessary. But when that happens, I want to exhort you. means stronger than encouraging. I want to exhort you. Think back to Jesus. Think back to his actions in this moment and through the next few hours of his life. And see as he goes through this various trials, as he goes through the beatings and ultimately his crucifixion, how he holds himself, how he responds to it all, how he handles it and deals with it. We're not going to be sinless like he is, but we can use that to strive towards. We can use his example as as something to try to emulate. And I, I just I exhort you that when you are dealing with these situations, If at all possible, think back to what he went through and how he responded and use that as a model for how we respond to what's going on around us. I'm not saying there are no times, places or methods to defend ourselves. I'm not saying there are no times, places or methods to fight back when injustice is happening to us or around us. So please don't hear that. There are those times, those places, those methods. However, it is usually, if not always, never the way our first reaction indicates. It is almost always, if not, if not always, never what our first instincts try to thrust us towards. And so take that moment to think back and to use Jesus' example and his model on how we react in those situations. You know, the key key to this is we we all too often lash out. We all too often, uh, in in anger and in hurt and in, in shock, the first, again, the first reaction of human nature is to immediately, verbally, mentally, emotionally, physically lash out at whatever is coming at us. We use the wrong done to us to justify the wrong that we do to others. Or the sin that we commit in our heart or with our actions. And our sin is never justified by the actions and the wrongdoings of others. They are not responsible for our sins. We alone are responsible for our sins. And I want you to sit on that. I, I, I had to. When I wrote that, it just came out. I read, reread that and I had to get up and I had to walk for a minute as I sat on that. Our sins are never justified by the actions and the wrongdoings and the sins of others. So we move on, verse 66. As the day came, Jesus was brought in front of the council. This council made up of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and so so on. And uh, one real quick aside, I've mentioned this before. I, I know I've especially mentioned it a couple of times when we were in the upper room um, Jesus talking to the disciples at the Last Supper. As we, we're going through Luke, I want to focus on what Luke's focus is. Uh, and when he wrote this gospel, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't contradict each other in any way, shape, or form. But they don't all bring the full story. Uh, none of the four gospels shares the full full account of all three trials or the full account of what Jesus went through. They each take different focuses and angles, all four inspired by God, all four completely true and, and, and errant, but they all take four different focuses. And so I've wanted to make sure I focus on what Luke is focusing on. Uh, and so with that, I do want to make the one aside that this is not Luke's focus at all, but you'll see this in the other gospels. Nothing about this trial, nothing about what Jesus was going through right here was legal, was moral, was done correctly or according to the Jewish law and custom as laid out in the law of Moses. They broke every, every Jewish law, every tradition, every right way of doing things as they brought Jesus through these trials. So now the main issue for this first trial comes in the two questions that the, the council asks. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? Now they are not asking, of course, out of genuine curiosity. If they were, Jesus would have answered them and much more plainly. Instead, they're asking to get his words and his admission on the official record. And it's, it's interesting to me that, that the three main titles for Jesus are all used in this passage. The council uses the title of Christ, which is the same word as Messiah. One's Greek, one's Hebrew. Same exact word, same title. They say they use the title Christ and they use the title son of God. And Jesus uses it in his response, as we touch on in a moment, uses the title, the son of man. Jesus's favorite title for himself. The three main titles of Jesus are all used in these couple of verses. So they ask him, are you the Christ? Jesus says, even if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And and we see here one of the key problems we see throughout the Gospels. We see throughout uh, Luke's Gospel. We see throughout the rest of the Gospels. We see throughout the the letters. um, uh, We see throughout Acts, uh, especially. And we see in people around us every day. These men were blinded to the fact that Jesus really was the Christ. They knew what he was claiming. It was clear to them that that's who he was saying he was. But they couldn't believe it, literally could not believe that that's who he was. And I I can tell uh, each of you here, I can tell everyone in Bangor, I can tell everyone I ever come across that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of the Bible is the Christ, is the Messiah, is God, is the Savior. And, And that is the job of everyone in this room. Everyone listening to me is to tell your friends, your family, your community who Jesus is. And I can tell everybody that truth and some may respond in faith but many won't many won't hear that many are blinded to this truth they are blinded by their sin they are blinded by their biases they are blinded by previous teachings or or past hurts and experiences they're blinded by their own understanding but they are blinded to the fact of who jesus really is That who he claims he is, is the truth of who he is. And like the men on this council, they are not seeking truth. The men on this council are seeking answers to be put on the record. And so Jesus doesn't give them what they want. And by doing so, he fulfills another of of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7. And and as he, he fulfills that whole section of Isaiah... And it's, it's incredible if you go back and read that, uh, especially chapter 53 of Isaiah, just how much of that is speaking hundreds of years ahead of time about what Jesus goes through and fulfills in this time. But instead, Jesus tells them that despite your unbelief, despite what you're about to do and what's about to happen to him, the son of man reigns. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God the Father. The Son of Man. He uses that title very clearly and specifically. Daniel brings that title up. When he describes, he writes about the Son of Man uh, in chapter 7 of, his, of, of the book of Daniel. And he says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. It's Jesus. That son of man, Jesus, he reigns. He is reigning right now in heaven and over this earth. He is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father. He reigns regardless of this council's belief or unbelief. He he reigns right now regardless of my belief or unbelief, regardless of any of your belief or unbelief. Jesus reigns and is reigning right now. I'm paraphrasing, but there's a saying that makes its way, especially online pretty often. It says, the truth does not stop being true. Just because people don't believe it. That's the truth of Jesus. That's the truth of him. The son of man reigning over his dominion and his everlasting kingdom right now. Jesus is telling these men as he says this. As he's speaking to this council. Uh, he's in essence telling them that the next time we meet the roles are going to be reversed. That the next trial at the judgment of the living and the dead. It is I who will be the judge. And they will all have to stand before him, give an account. Now the council, the council was tired of running in circles. They wanted to finish up so that they could go get Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate. Because they didn't have the authority to do what they wanted done to Jesus. They had to finish this so they could take him in front of the Pilate, so that they could tell him to crucify Jesus. To give him the death penalty. And so they say, quit talking in circles. Answer us plainly. Are you the son of God or no? He says, you say I am. This is an affirmative answer. He was saying yes. He does so in a way that in the Greek language and culture deflects the responsibility back to the the question asker. But the answer that he says in that is yes. There's no mistaking that meaning as he says that to the council. He knows they are looking to get him on the record. They're looking for a official testimony that they can use, and he won't give it to them, even as he answers their question. Now, at this point, they don't care. They're done. He answered affirmative, whether we have a, a, a clear admission on the record or not. He answered it. We heard it from his his own mouth. The rest of the trial is not legal or according to Jewish law, anyway. So, whatever we take this answer, we're done. You're guilty. That's, they recognized that he was indeed claiming to be the son of God. They recognized that he was indeed affirming their accusations. People can say and be genuinely confused. They can be genuinely searching and and, and look at Jesus never claimed to be God. Many people use that as a dismissive and have ulterior motives for that. But people can be genuinely searching that. And it's because even though this is one of many texts that do say that, that he claims to be the son of God here, in English especially, they're not always as clear as we want them to be. And so, as I said, people can genuinely find this hard to see, but Jesus was clear enough that those in his day who heard his words knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly who he claimed to be. And who was he? Who was Jesus? Jesus was a real, live, historical person. There is more historical evidence for him than Julius Caesar. Jesus was the Son of God, incarnated, brought into the flesh, God Himself, wrapped in a human body, fully human and fully God. He was the Son of God who came to redeem mankind. He came to reconcile us back to God. He came to bridge that divide that sin causes between us and God. He did it by taking our justice, our punishment for the sins that we have committed. Each and every every one of us here, each and every person born, with Jesus being the only exception, each and every person has sinned and was born separated from God. Even our little angel that, you know, right after they're born, we look at our babies and we say they're so perfect and pure and innocent. And that's true in a sense. But they are still born with that sin nature. And so they are still born separated from God. Each and every one of us here. And so each and every person who, is, who has lived, who is living, each and every person in this room, each and every person in Bangor, each and every person that we know uh, deserves to pay the consequences for their sin, deserves eternity in hell, having the full, perfect, and holy wrath of God poured out on them. The wages, meaning the payment of sin, is death. This is what each and every single person here, especially me, deserves. And yet, God loved us in that while we were yet sinners, before anything about us changed, before we repented, before we turned aside, before we pulled ourselves together, before we cleaned up our act, before any of it, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took that penalty, He took that wrath, He substituted Himself. In our place. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He died the death that we deserved. He took and absorbed the wrath that was justly and rightfully due to us. And He paid our debt and He bridged that gap for us on our behalf. And Jesus did this not because we obeyed well enough. Not because we did the right thing, not because our good outweighed the bad, because none of that is true. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. God's grace poured out on us, given to us through the vehicle of faith and our faith in his son. And this is a gift not because of us, but because of God and through God alone so that none of us may boast. There is no name except Jesus by which we are saved. There is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Those who are saved are saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in his son, Jesus Christ alone. This is all revealed through scripture alone, and everything that is done is for the glory of God alone. One last greatest hit, as Jonathan Edwards famously said, Contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Here's what this all means if you have believed in the Son, then you get the Father. You get the blessings, you get the mercy, you get the grace, you get eternity in heaven if you believe in the Son. If you reject the Son, you reject the Father. That's it. Nothing else matters. Nothing else plays a role and where we end up if we believe the sun or we reject the sun so you being here on sunday mornings you being here wednesday mornings thursday evenings any other time of the week that you're in this building none of that indicates that you are saved you voting the right way does not mean that you are saved you cheering for or believing in morals in family values in hard work in freedom in rugged individualism murka Homeschool, capitalism, rural small towns, down homeness, yay God, cross on the back of our truck, uh, Bible knowledge. None of that plays one iota into whether or not you are saved. Period. If you believe in the son, you get the father. If you reject the son, you reject the father. Now, much of that may be fruit of your salvation. I'm not saying those are bad things in any way, shape, or form. But that's there's too many people in our community, too many people in our friends and our families, too many people in our midst that are banking on those things to fool themselves into thinking that they are saved. Many people who bank on those things that they are saved go to churches. Many of them are not saved. And many of them will stand in front of God saying, Lord, Lord, and He will say, Depart from me, for I never knew You. Don't let that be you. Amen. Repent of your sins, believe the gospel. Accept the grace of God, which gives you faith, and put that faith in Christ Jesus, His finished work on the cross, and Him alone. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. You cannot make your friends, your family, your community believe. You can only control yourself. Show what repentance is through faith by showing people the change that takes place. By showing them the fruit. A lot of those, again, a lot of those things that I just listed out. Those are good fruit that can come from our salvation. But don't let that be what they see as why we are saved. Show them. Show people around us the change that takes place, the turning away from those sins that so easily entangle. Nothing we do saves us, but if we are saved, we won't do nothing. And then you can make sure that your friends, your family, your community were given the truth, given the chance to repent and believe. That's what Jesus calls us to it calls us to repent and believe, to love our neighbors as ourselves, so that the thought of them not believing should be heartbreaking to us and should drive us to action. Sometimes it takes years, sometimes decades. Sometimes we will not see the result we want to see. We are not called to be successful, we are called to be obedient, we are called to be faithful. We are called to do what God has called us to do. We cannot save anyone else. But don't let you be the one in that category that thinks that are fooling themselves and putting your salvation on those good things instead of on Christ and him alone. We're going we're gonna to come up, we're going to celebrate community now. Jesus, this is one of the things Jesus called his disciples to do. He gathered them together in the upper room at the end of the Last Supper. says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be put to death. And I'm going to do this. And the sacrament is going to be in remembrance of that. Because this is what my death will accomplish. This death symbolizes the new covenant. And so we do it in remembrance of him. We do it to remind ourselves of what he did. We do it to remind ourselves of the love that he showed, of the sacrifice he made, the pain and suffering he endured, and the eternity in perfect heaven that we receive as a result of it. This is a solemn, sorrowful, dark thing to think about. And at the same time, it's a celebration Because without this, not without partaking in communion, but without what it remembers and what it symbolizes, without Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection, we have no hope. We have nothing. Everything we have is because of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, his resurrection. And so we do this. We remember in celebration. We rejoice in his grace. We rejoice in his mercy even as we remember the darkness that it took to receive that. His blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. His death satisfied the payment for our sins. His resurrection frees us from the chains of death and sin. His Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. He puts to death our old sinful nature and gives birth to our new selves so that our heart desires To learn more, to grow closer to him, to serve him, to to grieve our sins, and to live out his grace and his mercy. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 11, communion is for those who are believers only. We don't restrict this. We We don't judge hearts. But we do ask that you look inside your own heart. Judge your own heart where you're at. And if you are a believer, please partake. Celebrate and 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 grieve your sins and celebrate the forgiveness but if you're not a believer don't do it to fit in don't do it to trick yourself don't do it as a an outward sign only and just pass the elements that's what we ask um take this if you take this take this in remembrance of jesus christ and us getting to enjoy eternity with him because of what he did Paul writes in in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, he writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is preaching the gospel. If I can have Mike and Frank uh, come on up. Um, We'll get started. We'll pass out the wafer, the the bread first. That symbolizes his broken body on the cross. After that's passed out, one of them will pray. We'll take that together as a family. Then we'll pass out the juice. Same, same thing. Um, it has been my honor to serve and to worship and to grow with you all. Thank you.